a bunch of trashy daydreams. It might be a cool way to start doing these intros, and I know we've been doing this in the past, but to talk about a movie that is in some way related, whether it be literally or tonally related to the book or to the discussion we have in the episode. Yeah, I think it's a great way to do it. You know, and it gets us thinking about the content of the episode after we've recorded the episode. You know, we can sort of think back on the episode while watching the movie and, you know, dredges up other associations that I think are really interesting. And then on this episode, we have on Dylan Mulvin, who wrote a book called Proxies, The Cultural Work of Standing In, which I think we'll get to in a minute. But for this episode, we've been thinking about talking about this movie called Strange Days. Yeah, I watched it recently and I'd seen it when I was a kid. It was one of these kind of taboo videos like Pulp Fiction and things that came out in the mid 90s when I was like 10 to 12 that were like just over the cusp of what I could see at the moment, but kind of <laughs> within reason, you know, like I was aware of them and I was able to like push my parents to be able to see them. And then eventually, I, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 when I saw them, but it, the movies from that moment, like from 94 or five, six, that area are super deeply burned into my, into my soul for that reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I, pretty much the same for me too. I mean, this one, this one's interesting. Cause like, I just remember this movie so differently than what it is. And this movie came out in 1995 and I always assumed that it was like a distant future, but the movie is actually supposed to take place in 1999 as like a millennium film. Right. I mean, a kind of end of the world, you know, like the last New Year's Eve is kind of the, the uh, premise in some way. I mean, not yeah. literally, but it, but it's a New Year's Eve definitely met with a lot of dread and sense of, you know, one thing that really struck me watching at this time is that, you know, as they're ramping up to New Year's Eve, uh, you know, of, of 2000, mm -hmm. there's like a character who says, you know, how are we going to possibly make it through another millennium when we've already done everything we can think of in this millennium? And that just rings so true now is, you know, I feel like we're entering this moment of, Y2K nostalgia now, which makes sense because, you know, people who were either in their teens or early 20s, people who were sort of at their height of like emotional connection to the zeitgeist at that time yeah. are now sort of approaching middle age and are becoming reflective and are, you know, maybe <laughs> getting bigger platforms in the culture, you know, are sort of able to dominate the discourse in a certain way. So it kind of makes sense that like the the great wheel is revolving back to 2000. You know, it's almost like the first time that I've seen like the 2000s as an idea really begin to solidify as like a subject for nostalgia the way, you know, the 60s and the 80s, you know, have been for so long. Absolutely. And as one of these people that are turning middle age or just turned middle age, there is something just intensely surreal about walking around the city and seeing kids dressed like I was dressed when I was like 18 to 20. I'm sure people <laughs> probably said this in the early 2000s when 80s night was popular. And because the 2000s were already an imitation of an imitation, it's extra strange that that imitation has been cycled through the, is being cycled through the culture one more time now. I definitely feel like a very heavy, do like overdose feeling of nostalgia overload and just like a very strange moment in the culture. Yeah, it occurred to me also that one tangible reason why it might be especially strong now 
has something to do with the housing crisis, you know, and the the recession in 2008 and the idea that so many millennials, you know, don't own houses and don't even necessarily plan to own houses. So the idea that you could be living a somewhat similar life at 40 to what you were living at 20 is more true now than I think ever before. You know, like all those 80s Gen X people were definitely like living in the suburbs by the time it was 2000. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can relate to that <laughs> completely. <laughs> I think every, it's a generational thing. Everything is, it's just like, is what's happening. <laughs> and, and just to get back into the um, this movie, Strange Days, just to get everybody on board, it was directed by Catherine Bigelow. And the plot is about a former policeman named Lenny, played by uh, Ray Fiennes, who looks exactly like Bradley Cooper in this movie. Totally, especially Bradley in um, Nightmare Alley. It's a similar type of like super degenerate and kind of down and out, but, you know, charismatic con man kind of character. Yeah, same haircut, kind of same greasy disposition. It's, it's It's very kind of uncanny in a way, but he gets into the trade of selling illegal virtual reality like recordings that allow the user to experience the emotions and past experiences of other people. And most of these tapes or these, I don't know, these discs are mostly porn, uh, people robbing banks, like just kind of tawdry stuff until I would say like the movie really takes off when Lenny gets this tape showing the rape and murder of a woman but the POV of the person doing it puts one of these devices on her head. So she's experiencing her own death. And then Lenny is also experiencing her death from the killer's perspective. And I guess her own, does that sound accurate? Yeah. It's a kind of mind meld that creates, you know, this is very Cronenbergian too. It creates a hybrid consciousness, right. Of, of his, his sort of thrill at raping and killing her and her terror at being raped and killed, which then ramifies further because he experiences that in the two, you know, it creates a feedback loop of, you know, emotions that each amp the other up, (laughs) which is perfectly, uh, you know, it's a perfect example of what like getting lost in these internet holes is like that you're, you know, fear and excitement and shame and hope. and, And even the question of like, can you intervene? all that stuff swirls around and puts you in this totally drugged out state, I would say. Uh, Seeing it this time around, I was really struck by how intense that was. Because I think when I saw it as a kid, which is weird to think that I was thinking about this movie as a teenager, I just assumed that you were experiencing snuff firsthand. I didn't know that not only were you experiencing snuff, but you were also experiencing being snuffed, which is pretty intense. And he has this bodyguard uh, named Mace, who's played by Angela Bassett who's trying to help him find the killer. And together they fall upon this entire conspiracy that I guess in the backdrop of is this this rapper who's like sings about inequality and rails against the police. He's kind of like a an amalgam of of Ice T and Ice Cube and NWA and like a lot of like gangster rappers from the 90s. He ends up being killed by the police. And there's a video of that by one of the people that was in his car. So that's like in the backdrop. And it's and, kind of ma- it's made as a response to Rodney King, right? Which must have been right. like 91, 92, something like mm-hmm. that. So that's basically the premise of the movie. But I just have to say like the visuals of it, like seeing the, uh, you don't really know like what happened in this version of Los Angeles, but there's tanks on the streets. 
it looks a lot like footage we're seeing out of uh, the Ukraine right now. So there's a lot of like really strange parallels to today in this movie that I think because the technology is, you know, they don't really hit the technology mark very well in this. And I think this is like what hurt the movie in the 90s is that like, you know, VR in some ways is almost more sophisticated now than it is in the film where they're just essentially like trading discs and have this like headset, but the emotional part of it, it's, it's really heavy. So in some ways, did you feel that way as well, that it seemed to like hit harder because there were so many like visual and like emotional echoes to today? Absolutely. And I think it's almost always true that people at the beginning of a technological shift, you know, when it's kind of like near future sci-fi, are able to express it better than people who are living in the midst of it. Because once you're living in the midst of it, it's so ubiquitous that it's hard to even come up with a way to represent it. So it's the same way that if you read, you know, Guy Debord or uh, Daniel Borston or lots of like media and TV theorists from the mid 20th century, they got something about you know, propaganda and TV and radio and, you know, just like what mass media was going to be, that is almost, even though it's from a long time ago, if you read it today, it almost feels more astute about the world we live in now than anything written today does, because they kind of saw it coming, you know, or even Baudrillard in the 80s, you know, that they could feel something shifting and they could remember what it was shifting away from. So they could perceive right. that it was strange and scary and maybe interesting in some ways they could also see what it was for what it was instead of seeing the technology like they felt the shift away from something emotional and human and they don't really preoccupy themselves with what the device actually is that's doing that right yeah and, and even the way that this kind of semi-professional or like unprofessionally recorded snuff footage that's trading hands in strange days the way that it's presented as a kind of black market you know and that there's you know basically like drugs which essentially i think it is fair to say uh, footage is a kind of drug and does like hype up your mind in a very similar way you know they understood that there would be this like unofficial trade in imagery that i think we've gone deeper into today except the i think kind of sad reality is that that trade has itself been centralized, right? So it's really not a black market, right? It's, you know, major corporations like Twitter and Meta and everything else selling us this footage that looks as though it's peer to peer, but is always run through these like extremely top down networks, you know, so it's almost like the pirate and even the word pirate, you know, like piracy and hackers and like all that culture that was a big deal in the 90s and early 2000s. Part of why we're nostalgic for it now is we feel that like that world uh, has been like taken over by the man also, you know, and like it doesn't feel like a site of any kind of genuine transgression anymore, even though the imagery that is flying across it is like more transgressive than ever. Yeah. And what I liked about what happens in Strange Days is that the characters and this felt like when I thought about it through our contemporary lens, it felt very chilling. But the idea that these people are essentially addicted to nostalgia. So the main character it watches videos of himself, like spending time and making love with his ex, who's played by Juliette Lewis. And he's just totally like immersed in it. It kind of puts him in this like empty catatonic state. And she's 
moved on in her life and she's with this other guy that's connected to the rapper and it, it it made me think about how right now because we're so addicted to this feedback loop of nostalgia where you go to your phone and especially if you've just been broken up with or you're pining over somebody you can always go back to those images you can always see what they're doing on their feeds and I think it keeps you trapped in this melancholic state of stasis that's really relentless and and I think ultimately really I guess sad for lack of better terms because I think that's something that happens in this movie they treat it a little bit more literally like a drug like the people act like junkies and they and they need more and like they move away from their lives and it and it goes into a somewhat uh, David Cronenberg territory, but there is something about it that felt just so, so intense when you think about the idea of Strain Days illustrating our conflict between our desire to relinquish ourselves into technology and shared experiences, along with how deep we have saturated ourselves in nostalgia and this collective desire to escape into media. Yeah, I was reading some of the reviews from when it came out. And something that a few of them picked up on is the imagery, like you were describing about uh, Rafe Fiennes like going into this reverie when he's reliving his relationship with Juliette Lewis. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the reviews talked about the imagery of the people, not, not the visions that they're seeing when, when they you know jack into this virtual world, but the way they actually look to us, which basically is totally catatonic or almost like they're in this kind of like slow orgasm, right? Where they're kind of like taken over, but they're not really present. And they're, you know, something that Ebert said in his review is like the theme of the movie is the question or the, you know, the idea that you can't be yourself when you're being someone else, you know, which is a perfect proxy idea, right? That this is all proxy experience that you're living and the promise of technology, you know, or virtual technology like this is that you can expand your life, you know, and be yourself and other people or be multiple selves. But it seems like the reality is like, you know, it's like a um, conservation of matter or conservation of consciousness law that like you can infinitely subdivide or infinitely transfer your presence and your attention, but you can't get more of it, right? So like, if you keep chopping it up, you know, something I thought about this week in terms of, I really would describe, <laughs> honestly would describe myself as a junkie with the Ukraine news this week. Like I've been completely unable to look away from it as I'm sure a lot yeah. of people have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have wondered a lot of like, where am I in this? Like who and what and where is the person that I think I am when I'm totally lost in these feeds and these, you know, narratives and counter narratives. And is this true? Is that true? Is this the footage? Is that footage, you know, debunking this footage? Is this propaganda? Is that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it relates to this idea of proxy war, both in the literal sense of like Ukraine being a proxy territory between Russia with a kind of dream of turning back into a, a larger empire and the US and NATO, which is a kind of empire in a sense, you know, and, and like both of them clashing on this, you know, third party, but that can't afford to be unaffiliated, right? This sort of has to be shoved to one side or the other. So it's a proxy war in that sense, but it also in this more strange days and kind of, you know, hybrid warfare and like media warfare sense feels like a proxy war in that, you know, there's something very tangible happening on the ground which obviously is very sad and very scary. And, you know, that there are these like primal emotions about it. But then there's also this just like ever growing cloud of like, 
you know, proxy of participation of like, what are people all around the world, not just hearing about this war, but like, in what way do they feel that they're participating, you know, by sharing information, by not sharing information, by making memes, by making videos, by debunking videos, by, you know, wh whatever's happening with, with um, financial systems, which feels like its own weird proxy thing of like, you know, you make these kind of digital decisions about what happens with money that has real effects of like people can't eat or people can't get gas or whatever, you know, it's like right, right. part of the nature of this war feels as though it's a negotiation, not just of literal territory, although it is that, but also of, you know, what's real and kind of what is, what does it mean to be able to assert that you know what's real and that other people don't. It seems like a war over that, which is obviously the war that we've been in on many fronts for at least the past decade. Absolutely. Just watching strange days while occasionally looking away from the screen to scroll on my phone. It's also just so intense thinking about this almost libidinal desire that we have for violence, war and sex and how we and have all of those things on one device that is funneled or is animated by like an addiction to nostalgia that I think ultimately it never ends the way you expect it to. And I think that's one of the main messages of Strange Days is no matter how long you exist in this past, if that's where you want to go, it'll never end well for you. It's almost like, you know, obviously our memories are made to only contain so much and what's really important to you stays and different things can trigger that. And maybe you want to bring that back, but it does seem like there is a war within ourselves that maybe we shouldn't be able to live this much of our lives in the past and have so much of a auto panopticon like perspective on ourselves and other people where we, we just can't get away from it. And I've been like you with this war, like, Oh, it's like just impossible to look away. And you just get sucked into all of it, you know, whether it's the footage or knowing which footage is real or what's not, and just making sure that you're like updated and, and seeing how it progresses and how it's ending and, and knowing that all these decisions that are being made, especially the financial ones, like you mentioned, are also impacting people in this like very real way, but we're stuck in the proxy middle ground, which is the device, the social media platforms, which is like standing in for empathy and perspective of what the reality of this is and like how fucking terrible it is and how we've become almost just passive observers to it that are like almost excited by it. Or even if we're disgusted by it, we're still excited by that disgust. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to think how nostalgia works on all sides, right? I mean, it seems like, you know, Putin has this nostalgia, you know, literally for the Soviet Union. And then if you read his speech or watch his speech, like also this kind of deep, you know, you know, a sort of psychotic, like medieval nostalgia for, you know, the greatness of Russia and the unity of Russia and Ukraine, like all this stuff that is extremely uh, past rooted in terms of its vision of the future. And then the West obviously has this Cold War nostalgia. Like if you watched uh, by the State of the Union, this whole thing that, you know, we get to be the good guys again, and we're standing up to the, you know, evil empire and it's freedom Ugh. versus, you know, but that thing like is tugs people's heartstrings so deeply, you know, and it feels like, you know, I don't know that much about recent Russian history, but it seems, you know, there's some idea that the grand narrative, you know, ended in the Cold War, right, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then you had the 90s, right, of, you know, the Yeltsin era with Putin as this kind of 
peripheral figure, but rising in power during that time, which was this moment of, you know, hyper-capitalism and hyper, you know, oligarchic consolidation. You know, and I've heard some people say that, like, in the 90s, Russia went from being not part of the capitalist system at all to being, like, the most capitalistic system in the world, right? So it's this moment sort of without narrative that was all about accumulation. And then, you know, I guess the West kind of saw Putin as a sort of ally at that time. And then, you know, he's certainly in our eyes become darker and darker and more and more of this like Macbeth kind of mad tyrant king figure. Yeah. And so, something that's fascinating to me now about, you know, from a literary point of view of sort of watch, trying to imagine how I would conceive of him as a character is this sense that, you know, he has this mourning about the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And him saying it was the greatest tragedy in, you know, human history. And there's something to me really ironic about that because it seems like he alone as a figure in the world materially benefited from the fall of the Soviet Union more than anyone possibly could have, right? Like the fall of the Soviet Union made him possibly right. the, the richest person of, <laughs> of all, you know, who knows, but like among the richest people in the world and maybe of all time. And yet the fact that now as he's getting older, it would lead him to this kind of mythic frenzy in which he says, you know, that exact wealth you know, and, and sort of tangible power is worth nothing without this mythic quest that may well destroy him. You know, from a from a literary point of view, that's a very compelling, you know, negative character arc to think about, you know, and it's related to nostalgia, I think, of like, how do you, you know, when you have all the money in the world and all the yachts in the world and whatever else, I can imagine that it starts to feel less and less real and you can convince yourself that, you know, the real can only be found through this, like, kind of Nazi idea of, of blood and soil, you know, I can see how you end up at that point if you've transcended the accumulation of all the other things that we consider real in the world. I can get you what you want. I can, I can get you anything. You just have to talk to me. You have to trust me, okay, trust me. Because I'm, I'm your priest. I'm, I'm your shrink. I am your main connection to the, to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. Santa Claus is the subconscious. You say it, you think it, you can have it. So today on the show, we have on Dylan Mulvin. Dylan is an assistant professor at the London School of Economics in the Department of Media and Communications. His research looks at the cultural history of technology and the people who make things we take for granted. And the book that we discuss is called Proxies, The Cultural Work of Standing In. And you can download a free copy of this book at dylanmulvin.com. I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. And I'd say this book is about how those with the power to design technology in the very moment of design are allowed to imagine who is included and who is excluded in the future. So we get into a lot of that in this conversation. I also want to preface that we recorded this about a month ago. So we talk about the war in Ukraine as though it's something that might happen, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> We're in a very different place now, and I guess all all versions of proxies have come true and reveal themselves for for what they are. Yeah, we also discuss nuclear weapons a little bit in the discussion, which which I think has you know become a lot more relevant now too. But that's sort of to me like the essence of proxies in the 20th century is this idea that like direct confrontation, say between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time, can't happen. Right, so you have to have proxies in, you know, in Vietnam and Afghanistan, um, you know, a confrontation with China in the case of, of Vietnam uh, or Afghanistan, 
and then the Middle East throughout the early 21st century, and now Ukraine. And the idea that you know nuclear discussion has like bubbled back up to the surface in a very real way, to me is like the you know obviously the most frightening, but in some ways also the most intellectually fascinating aspect of proxies because it's sort of this question of like what is the durability and extent of proxies you know in this like ritual sacrifice way, you know sad, sad as it is, but like does the logic of nuclear powers sacrificing proxies? to avoid nuclear war, does that last and does that work? And at what point does it stop working and like the actual, you know, Armageddon scenario happens, which I think is part of why you see all this like end times preaching about a direct confrontation between the US and Russia or the US and the Soviet Union and from the point of view of the Cold War, you know, because it just literally is the like tangible Armageddon scenario as well as having all these biblical resonances. So in a way, the question of how can a proxy work? Maybe you could even say Christ is a kind of proxy of like one person's death redeems the suffering of the world, right? But it's like, what is the limits of that belief? And if it doesn't work anymore, what does it mean when like the thing itself finally is confronted? And like, is that Armageddon or or not? Or is that just a moment of revelation? Because one thing we talk a lot about in the conversation is how the slippage of proxies and their unreliability is almost what makes them perfect stand-ins for the thing that they represent. Like they're never supposed to be complete. They're never supposed to be total signifiers. They're just something that we all can agree on to mask or to conceal and reveal something else or to put something into focus. So I don't know, I think in general, this conversation is that it'll be an interesting lens to thinking about what's going on in the world right now, especially now that we have finally fully gone into a proxy war. Yeah, it's kind of uncanny, the, you know, not just how much has changed since we had this conversation, but how <laughs> you know, real things suddenly can get, you know, how you can think of something in a certain lens or, or in a certain way. And then, you know, in the extremely near future, like what all of those ideas mean to you shifts entirely, you know, which I think, like you said, is what charges proxies up, you know, and makes them have, may, makes them work, but also makes them, you know, a subject of critique and, and sort of, um, not, not necessarily confusion, but, you know, that, that are confounding in a way, because the, the energies around them can, you know, radically shift into, into these like terrifying new forms. So before we get into this conversation with Dylan, I just want to let everyone know that we get into a lot of visual references, a lot of visual models. I'll make sure to put time codes in the, in the show notes along with hyperlinks so you can see what we're talking about. I think that'll definitely help everyone get a better idea of what these things are and just to put, uh, shine a light on them too. There's just so many, or so many proxies that exist behind the scenes that I was never aware of that once you know about them, it, it adds like another layer of uh, disconnect to an already very fragmented society. Yeah. You, you, you see what's standing in for what, which reveals both, right? It reveals the thing behind this, this curtain, let's say, or behind the stage. And it reveals the thing on the stage as having been a proxy. So in a way you come to a new understanding of both of those things, which you can never quite see in the same way again. So the academic trajectory is, I was given a research question to work on by my advisor 
um, to try to figure out when a particular thing had happened um, in image compression so that he could compare it to when something had happened in sound compression. He was writing a history of the MP3 at the time. And that led me to um, all of the minutes uh, of the NTSC standard, which is for those who remember um, what we used to call American color television and which was probably the most pervasive moving image standard of the 20th century. And so you go back to you know the early 1950s and there are a bunch of corporations and engineering firms trying to standardize color television and so I had to order this book of the NTSC minutes and it came from Iowa to Montreal. And in the middle of this book, and this is also a time when McGraw Hill <laughs> would print and bind um, uh, NTSC committee hearing minutes as a, as a volume. In the middle of that book were these slides, 27 uh, test slides that were used as the basis of the NTSC standard. And I, when I say used as the basis, I mean, that's how they calibrated what would become American color television. There was one film strip that they tried, but it wasn't a kind of shared common technical tool um, to figure out what American color television should look like. They had these slides produced by Kodak Eastman and they were produced specifically for color television. And they're super weird images. There's one in the book, um, if you're, if you're in chapter three, but the images overall show people canoeing, playing table tennis. There's a picture of a, a woman lying in, a, in some hay holding a kitten, right? A boy doing some painting. Um, they're super pastoral. Four of the images survive in color, the rest were in black and white. And I just became super fascinated with these images because I could see right from the beginning that they were they were trying to accomplish many things at once, right? They were supposed to be technical objects, but there are also uh, imaginary pictures of what American color television might look like, which in turn was imagining what America might look like or could have looked like. And they were, they were very idealistic. They've, they feature almost no electricity <laughs> in the images, which I think is fascinating for American color television and, and the things that we associate with the family home of that period, right? They're all almost pictures of people playing outside. And so I could see from that point that they were a blend of sort of technical aspirations, aesthetic aspirations, as well as kind of cultural and ideological aspirations. And I was interested in the ways that the engineers narrated that blend how they discuss them. At one point, they ask for more images that include more green. Um, and they're trying to figure out, you know, can we build a standard that um, uh, can fit within the same bandwidth as the black and white signal and all of these other technical, economical um, considerations at the same time as they are, in a sense, coding how television will look and, and, and the kinds of criteria that television will have to fit inside of. <laughs> um, and, you know, Susan Murray has written this phenomenal history of American color television now in which she talks about all of the failures of that standard, right? So NTSC came to be known as never the same color or no true skin color. And, 
you know, you can point back to those slides in some sense and say, well, maybe there's a failure of imagination here. But, you know, for me, the, the most interesting story is just, you know, that's a kind of necessary act, right? They had to produce some test images. Um, and so what if we kind of follow these images, stick closely to them, find the kind of controversies, right? The moment they ask for more green, find the absence of controversy, right? No one comments on the complete absence of um, non-white actors, right? Um, and, and American color television, like many other image standards of the 20th century is extremely poor at producing non-white skin, right? So you can point to the absence of controversy as well. And so from there, I started to gather what would later I would call proxies. So I gathered a bunch of other test images, including the Lena test image, images used in film standardization and fax standardization, which not in the book. Um, this montage used to test the energy consumption of LCD TVs versus plasma TVs, um, which is intentionally boring. Um, and I was fascinated by that as a value. But then I started to look more broadly, right? So beyond test images to other forms of standing in, things that became the center of knowledge systems. Um, and, and so that's why the book is centered around test cities, test objects, and later people who have to embody um, averageness or, or normalcy or um, typicality. So that's the scholarly trajectory of the book. And, and where the where the project comes from. The briefer, um, if you want to say psychological explanation um, is I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, at a time when the weakness of the Canadian dollar as well as tax breaks meant that Vancouver became this um, place for Hollywood um, film and television production to go to make TV or film cheaper, right. And so uh, I grew up uh, nearby to sets for Highlander or X-Files. And I began to see the ways Vancouver was this non-place that could be anywhere um, while I was watching some of my favorite TV shows. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a peculiar experience for people who grew up in Vancouver um, to constantly see your hometown uh, represented as other places and never, and there aren't really any well-known films set in Vancouver itself. I was just watching Yellow Jackets. And I guess they started filming Yellow Jackets in LA. And then when COVID hit, they suspended production. And so I was watching, I don't know, the second or third episode, and it just suddenly became Vancouver. And it totally threw me in a way I hadn't been thrown by um, uh, the appearance of Vancouver since I was a kid. So that's the, that's the, the psychological explanation is growing up in a place that was only ever a stand-in. Uh, and where your own ability to fantasize by watching something like the X-Files is like warped back into the proxy state of realizing it's your own town to begin with. Totally, totally. Are you familiar with the Indian head test pattern? I am, yeah. Is, yeah. Would that be also considered a proxy? And for people that don't know, I guess this was something that came about in the 60s that was this like, you've probably seen it in movies. I think now in movies, it just represents that like, it's old, but there's a Native American head, I believe somewhere at the top and then these like spirals. And I think this was something that came to be before color television. Now I think we use like infomercials and stuff whenever there's like a, a sign off in the signal or 
I guess whenever the network is like done running something, they just run reruns or commercials or something. But it's um, reading your book, I, I always found that image to be just so strangely compelling. And it was yeah. like something also like, it seemed, you know, for lack of better words, like deeply fucked up. Like I was like, <laughs> why are we using this man's image as a way to say that nothing is happening? And um, yeah. was that also something that came into your research? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'm in the UK now and there's a, an equivalent kind of test signal image that has a, a, a girl in it. And there's one with a puppet as well. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that those are our proxies and I would include color bars in there as well. And I think that, you know, one of the things I tried to show in the book is that these stand-ins can appear at different stages in the creation, development, standardization, and then maintenance of a system, right? So color bars are not a useful tool for building a television standard, but they are a useful tool for calibrating your specific television or your specific computer monitor to um, the expected um, look of, a, of an image, right? And so the, um, the so-called Indian, head image is meant to be there as a kind of everything's okay alarm right to make a <laughs> to make a simpsons reference just to say okay this is this is the pure signal right and often those color bars or those test slides or those calibration slides will be accompanied by a kind of constant tone as well right and that's a signal to you that the, the system is being maintained that there is no kind of gap right there's no dead air it's a way of filling in those gaps. Um, the artist Lucy Raven has has played with these test images and test tones as well. So I think something like um, that image uh, uh, is a kind of public manifestation of the larger process of standardizing, in that case, an infrastructure and letting the seams of that infrastructure show a little bit by, by you know, having a public um, representation of um, the standard working. It seems like uh, proxies, if you, you know, or infrastructure in that way has to exist in that kind of balanced middle zone if it's not going to get out of balance, right? That it has to, right. the seams have to show enough that it, it's almost like the uncanny valley in a way, right? That the seams have to show enough that people don't become uncomfortable at uh, feeling that the fact that proxies are in effect is being concealed but the seams can't show so much that it becomes like genuinely threadbare. And then people feel like this proxy isn't representative of anything or it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a chapter about cleaning the kilogram, right? And there aren't too many members of the public who care a lot about the maintenance of the metric system. But um, you could say that the history of the uh, physical standards and the metric system it follows exactly that trajectory. Right? We have to know that we're doing enough to maintain this measurement standard, right? So in that case, washing and cleaning it by hand with a piece of chamois leather to give it a handsome but not specular appearance, <laughs> um, to use the, the phrasing of the metric system. But at a certain point, if it starts to seem like it's too unstable, right? Despite all of the rituals and practices that surrounded it, its maintenance and, you know, burying it, um, in, in, a, in a ceremony, 
right? Despite all of that, if it seems like it's too threadbare, ultimately it has to be replaced, even if there are no actual measurement errors that can be assigned to the kilogram. It's like a confidence crisis that people just don't believe it's effective anymore. Yeah, totally, totally. This reminds me of, did you hear about this? Uh, I believe this was yesterday for Groundhog's Day. Apparently the groundhog that they brought out died. No, tell me about that. <laughs> David, I feel like you you told me about it. Do you know more? <laughs> yeah, it was just that. Like I was, I was teaching my class on whatever, a couple of days ago, you know, and the students were really depressed, justifiably so about you know, them feeling like they're kind of losing their college experience with uh, all the, you know, restrictions that they have. And uh, I said, well, at least, you know, on the bright side, you know, maybe it's like springs kind of around the corner and the days are getting longer or whatever. <laughs> and one of the students was like, dude, the groundhog that was supposed to predict spring just died yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> just, oh, and the, the odd part is, is I have a memory of this happening last year. And when we were first talking about it, I didn't even realize the built-in joke of that being indicative of Groundhog's Day in of itself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I feel like this, this conversation is just totally apt, but I, I'm also curious, like, how would you differentiate between something being a proxy, something being a signifier, and something being a surrogate? So for me, you know, I, I think we're kind of surrounded by proxy relationships, right? So the consumer price index being based on a market basket of goods that's supposed to be representative of normal consumption habits, right? And it's, you know, kind of front page news right now is we're daily getting reports about skyrocketing inflation um, or thinking about, you know, the kind of proxy servers you might assign as a buffer between you and the internet. Um, and which we might use, for instance, if we want to mask our actual location. And since we use IP address as a, um, a trusted um, signifier, let's say, of location, right? The proxy server can, can become uh, a stand-in for a different place. Um, that's one way of kind of parsing that relationship. Um, and, and a surrogate being, if we think about proxies as trusted delegates, then a, a surrogate is just that, right? It's either a stand-in for a particular person or a particular job, um, but it, it has to be a, a relationship built on trust and standing in. That for me is the, is the distinction and that the proxies in the book can and often do kind of shift along different axes of trust and um, permanence, right? So the kilogram being the most obvious one that lasts for over a hundred years Whereas um, the standardized patients that finish the book can be kind of changed in and out, right? You have lots of different people who perform the normal or typical symptoms of disease, but the idea of assigning to those individual actors that role to embody illness or disability um, is a standardized part of the medical system. And they're not a surrogate, I guess, because they're not standing in for a specific sick patient. They're doing the opposite, right? Of standing in for a non-specific embodiment of a certain symptom. Exactly, exactly. So if, if somebody has your proxy vote, right? Um, because you're a part of a cooperative or a, or a shareholder in a company, you're standing in for a specific person. But the, the surrogacy in... Um, or the, the proxiness rather in, in standardized patients, they're standing in for the idea of a 
the typical symptoms or signifiers of a disease or a disability um, and not standing in for a specific case of gangrene. Right. And I guess they're based on this medical assumption that the patient's particulars don't matter except insofar as they're an embodiment or a vector of a certain disease. <laughs> right. 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 You have a long chapter about the Lena image or Lena image. How am I yeah. pronouncing it? I'm both are both are acceptable. And and you were also mentioning these um, calibrating standards for for television. And what I think is like interesting about the people in these photos is that for them to become a proxy, you have to have your essence almost ripped away for the object to become a singular material. Has there ever been any follow-up with the people in these images and how they feel about becoming this universal or semi-universal stand-in for something that's just completely abstract and immaterial? Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of these famous images, right? And, and in the book, I kind of trace how frequently they draw on sort of feminized whiteness, right? I'm, not at all the only person to to write um, those histories. Um, you know, so Richard Dyer was one of the first people to write about, you know, the calibration of film and photography technologies. Lorna Roth has written about Shirley cards, which are used to, to standardize uh, film stock. And Genevieve Yu has written about so-called China girl images, which are, are used at the kind of leaders to um, film strips to tell a projectionist that the film is properly calibrated, right? And in the book, so I'm talking about what is possibly the most well-known or widely used digital test image of all time, the Lena image, which was torn, folded, or cut from the November 1972 centerfold of Playboy, uh, depending on who you ask. Um, it made its way onto an analog to digital scanner at USC in summer of 1973. Um, to partly figure out how to send digital images over ARPANET, which would later become the internet. And because of USC's position within ARPANET um, and their creation of an analog image database, um, that image, the Lena or Lena image, um, went on to become the sort of icon of the discipline. So that by the uh, early 1990s, if you open up an, a, a, a copy of digital image processing the journal you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of reproductions of the lena image which for those who haven't seen it is this um cropped image obviously there's no nudity in it uh, of a woman in a hat um, staring to the camera and it's this kind of soft focus vaseline smudged lens um totally marked by the aesthetics of softcore porn of the 1970s I should say as a side note that that issue of Playboy is the highest selling issue of Playboy ever, that that's peak Playboy. And that's a, that's a coincidence. The engineers didn't know that at the time. That's so fascinating, especially it's for so it to weird. be this widely reproduced, sexualized image. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, oh my God, it's so, yeah. um, <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. And, Le and so Lena, who um, is now, uh, um, She's a Swedish woman, so she was in the United States in the early 1970s and was working as a model. And for a while, she sort of disappeared, and she was brought to a conference of engineers who um, fetted her about 20 years ago. And then in the last few years, as that image um, has, be 
has moved from being an icon of digital image processing as a discipline to becoming an icon of sexism and harassment and mistreatment within computer science more generally. Several journalists have sort of tracked her down in Sweden and interviewed her. And then she became a kind of spokesperson for a documentary made about her, but more generally about women in STEM fields um, that, that came out a few years ago. Uh, it's, I mean, it's about 20 minutes long. And the fallout of that documentary, which was funded by the um, Code Like a Girl campaign, the fallout of that is that journals and conferences started banning um, the use of that particular image. And so I'm sort of fascinated how this image, which started as a stand-in for human faces, right? And obviously also a stand-in for the kind of cultural milieu of image engineering in the 1970s, the fact that porn could just be present in the computer lab in the way that it was. But the way that it started as a stand-in for human faces and then later became a stand-in for the field itself, right? That it was uh, iconic of digital image processing, then can still remain a proxy, but a proxy for another kind of cultural conflict, right? That that of the representation of women and and, um, the gendering of STEM fields more generally. It seems like that's part of the, you know, emotional or psychodrama of the book is this idea of like proxy slippage, you know, and this yeah. question of like, to what degree do proxies, you know, have a mind or, or like a tendency of their own where they're kind of volatile images that move and change meaning and to what degree are they being kind of forcibly managed and like by who and why. And, you know, that drama to me was very rich and interesting. Right. And they almost have to be underestimated for them to work or for them to like carry out their function. Like I think in the book, you do mention that they're, that all proxies have a porous nature. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I like that the idea that they're under, did you say underestimated? Yeah. Right. They, they can't be too famous. Right. So in that, in that, that first volume I was mentioning of the digital image processing journal that has Lena appear hundreds of times, there's one image of Walter Cronkite, for instance, and one image of Ronald Reagan, I think, um, which kind of tells you, you know, it's important that this image not be of a famous person and yet be something that we can all recognize so that we can sort of at a glance evaluate how good your edge detection algorithm is, for instance. So yeah, I mean, David, you mentioned the kind of psychodrama of, of proxy slippage. I mean, that's totally the, the core of the book, right? Because I think we, we talk a lot about controversies about proxies if we're talking about image databases, for instance, right? And, and But often those appear in the news because we know that contemporary AI or machine learning is built on highly biased data. And then we say, you know, look at the data set, you know, look who's represented in the data set, look at the outputs of the algorithm and how they are unjust and oppressive, right? And that's, you know, there's important political work happening in that process. But while that discussion's happening, it usually centers around what I would call accordance, right? Does the database reflect reality? Whose reality does it reflect? And for me, the history of the proxies in the book, which are not centered around databases per se or networks per se, but much more kind of squishy community cultural reference, right? The things that 
become kind of affectively bonded with um, is one of constant slippage, right? So the book begins with Yodaville, which is this kind of um, test city in the Arizona desert uh, uh, that's used to remediate um, uh, US military training after the Battle of Mogadishu to try to train pilots on um, a target city that reflects um, better the, um, I think the quote is chaotic uh, environments of the developing world. That's in a RAND Corporation report, right? But so it begins as this kind of um, plastic, flexible, um, imminently adaptable place. But by the time the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan um, uh, begin, they start just defining Yodaville in terms of its similarity to those places, right? So it, it, it moves from being flexibly similar to the developing world to suddenly being importantly like Iraq because it's hot, right? And I'm fascinated by those moves, the moments that you go from, this thing is useful because it's like lots of places to this thing is useful because it's specifically like this one thing. Let me, in that case, highlight and bring forward the characteristics of these shipping containers in the Arizona desert that let me convince myself and convince all of the soldiers I'm training that this will be analogous to actually being at war, right? And there's, we have lots of examples of this. So um, the Middletown studies are maybe one of the most obvious. That's the, the, the studies of Muncie, Indiana in the early 20th century that were supposed to be a kind of study of not necessarily an average American town, but a, a middle-ish American city, right? A place that wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold, wasn't near a particular coast, was not fully uh, attached to a bigger city. So they, you know, uh, Robert and Helen Lind ended up choosing Muncie, Indiana, and then they, right, they write the first Middletown study, which is supposed to be this kind of profile of, of life in America. And then they write Middletown in Transition, which is you know, a follow-up as there's kind of massive economic upheaval, which again is supposed to kind of index an experience of American life that isn't necessarily average, but is middle-ish. But by the mid 20th century, and Sarah Igo's history of this is, is the, the reference to go to here, by the middle of the 20th century, that middleness has become averageness, right? And, journalists and corporations start going to Muncie, Indiana, and they refigure it not as middle-ish, which I'm going to keep saying, but as typical and ideal, right? And then there's Hollywood films about Muncie, Indiana, and, you know, Life Magazine sends people there to photograph it, and then takes people from Muncie and brings them to New York and see, like, let's see the big city through the eyes of the average American. And I think that that slippage between um, it's a proxy of sorts to it's a proxy for an ideal or the typical or the average is really important when we're talking about stand-ins that we, we either share or we build standardized systems around. It's almost another idea of deployment, right? It's like if you say, you know, we're going to deploy troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. At the same time, we're going to deploy this town to be Iraq and mm. Afghanistan, right? It's like we're going to I love that, yeah. activate it from its state of potentiality. I love that, yeah. And but I think, you know, in 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 
the case of Muncie, right? Nobody, there was no, there was no joint chiefs of staff who got together and said, let's deploy <laughs> Muncie, right? It happens organically. Right. And, and it builds up through lots of different forces, right? A film about uh, Muncie, the Life Magazine thing, you know, people doing market research there and it kind of accretes over time. I wonder if it's also related to, you know, if you think about it in a, like a metaphysical or mythological way, if it's also this thing that seems to happen in a lot of religious parables where, mm. you know, people over time come to worship the idol as the thing, you know, as the God, rather than as the representation of the God. And they forget right. that distance the same way you could say we come to, in some sense, worship Muncie as, you know, the essential or the classic or the, you know, the real America to, to use a loaded word rather than a kind of more abstract representation of just middle America. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot that you could say about the way certain proxies, and I think the Lenimid follows this, the Kilogram follows this, Muncie follows this, in which things get treated as very similar to religious relics, right? That they, they, they gain a kind of magic and the reason I chose the proxies that are most prominent in the book are they, they are all um, places or objects or systems that have lasted a long time, right? And they've become central to um, uh, different knowledge systems. And in that process, quite organically, or in the case of the kilogram, a little less organically, since it's a product of, uh, of the French Revolution, they, they gain... Um, that kind of hold over their their community um, because they're repeatedly used, they're referenced, they become um, the kind of common language of that community. If we think about the proxification of the world that's potentially happening, would you consider something like memes to be a, a proxy for emotion for a culture that has less and less of an ability to show subjectivity. I mean, I'm 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 totally in favor of an expansive use of the word proxy. I I mean, I think um, I'm not too worried about policing the the boundaries of what is and isn't a proxy. I I mean, I think that if we're looking at memes as a proxy for emotion, right? You know, what's the what's the important relationship there, right? Who's delegating to memes and why? What's the kind of material life of the meme that makes that delegation important? What's the, what are the techniques for maintaining that relationship, right? So one of the arguments in the book is that you know, prox the proxies I care about there, the relationship I care about is an analogous one, right? This thing is like that thing. Mm. Doesn't, it's not, it is not that thing, right? It's, it, crucially, it is not the same thing as that thing, right? Um, the proxy vote is a proxy vote because it is not the original person making the vote, but it's a it's like it enough that we can trust it. It's not someone and, making like a vote that you wouldn't make. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, and when that happens, if it's you know what, what what's it called, the College of Electors, right? You know, if if there's a if there's a non-faithful elector, it's big news. <laughs> I mean, somebody's broken the trust of that uh, delegation. That's that's why we call them unfaithful. Um, <laughs> but key to the argument is that analogies are not truth propositions, right? They're only ever held contingently. This thing is like that thing until it's not, 
right? And if somebody challenges um, how viable the relationship is, okay, Muncie is sort of like the middle of America until people start pointing out that the Lynns chose not to interview any of the African-Americans who lived in Muncie, right? And the accordance, the, the analogy starts to look a little threadbare and there becomes good reason for sort of abandoning Muncie as a representative of middle America or average America. So if, I, if we're looking at memes as proxies for emotions, let's say, you know, what is it, what kinds of repetitions and relationships and practices of referencing and shared referencing are necessary for that analogy to hold? How do we, how, do, how does this meme come to stand in for cringiness or gossipiness or sadness or embarrassment or shame, right? What kinds of repetitions and uh, shared values are necessary to maintain that analogy? That to me is, you know, if you're actually going to look at this as a proxy relationship, that's what you're looking at. What does it take for that to hold and what happens when it falls apart? And I guess another form of slippage that almost takes us into the realm of like the occult or some kind of, you know, psychological horror is, you know, what happens when the slippage is so complete that, you know, you as a supposedly, you know, autonomous human subject find yourself imitating the proxy rather than having it imitate you. So the meme, you know, it's not, uh, I, what I think I'm doing is saying, you know, LOL, because I find it funny. But in fact, it's like, <laughs> I'm starting to find it funny because LOL made me think that that was the response I was supposed to have. Or you say yeah. LOL instead of laughing. Exactly. And <laughs> don't feel any humor. Like you're just a factor <laughs> of, of that idea. <laughs> right, right. You know, back on this this thread about the proxification of the world, you know, right now we're in a place where we're potentially entering into another proxy war. This mm -hmm. time... Mm -hmm. with Russia, but we're going to do it in Ukraine. We did this with Vietnam when we wanted to fight China. But it feels like more and more as we merge with technology, where we have more and more distance from each other, where the necessity for using memes to show subjectivity becomes like something more important. And we're turning all of these ideas of discourse and action into hyper objects that mm. are just so big that we can't really talk about them or learn about them unless we use proxies to show them. Mm -hmm. And we become more accustomed to only talking about the proxies where we end up in the situation that David was just talking about, where we get to a point where you say something funny and I just go, oh, LOL. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that that fear, that's essentially the fear of the, of the proxy, right? Is that the... Okay, so if the proxy is a virtual thing based on the real, the fear is that the real gets reshaped according to the virtual, right? And this is, this is what we talk about when we're talking about databases or machine learning being based on biased data, right? And so Google or Facebook will say, well, the data is a reflection of reality. It's a reflection of search history, which is a reflection of people, or it's a reflection of all of the images on Flickr or all of the images in ImageNet, right? There's an argument about accordance and other people will say, yes. And yet, even if that's the database you're using, it's creating new realities out of the biased um, representation of the world that's, that's baked in there. And that's unjust, right? You should adapt 
that database to reflect a more just reality. Yeah. So the, the fear there is that the virtual thing, the representation of the world um, will actually become the basis of a new reality. And, you know, again, I kind of intentionally stay away from databases in the book <laughs> because I want to think about the squishier, more human, more labor-centric role of people involved in the maintenance of these systems. And I love, for instance, Rebecca Schneider's study of historical reenactment, right? And, mm. you know, you go and you talk to Civil War reenactors, and it's the exact same fear, right? There's this, they talk about a, she talks about a portal um, where people want to reenact the Civil War, but not have it be so real that they're recreating the Civil War, right? And so maintaining a kind of queasiness um, that allows you to suspend disbelief that makes the experience feel real enough without actually lapsing into any of the obviously um, hate-based reasons that the Civil War um, uh, took place, right? And we're, we're just that, facing genuine danger. Right, right, right. And that queasiness, which is you know what she calls it, I think is is absolutely core to all of the things you're describing, right? That there should be a kind of queasiness uh, uh, about a proxy war. Um, and, and it's not at all about dispelling that queasiness, about like making us feel more comfortable with surrogate or delegated relationships, but about actually staying with that queasiness, following it, seeing how it manifests in different practices that are meant to kind of quell that bad feeling, right? How do we, how do we make Yodaville seem good enough to be a rock, right? And shouldn't we care about the kind of work that that takes to quell that queasiness? That, I mean, that's the reason that the book focuses on um, material objects or people or kind of smaller scale practices. Yeah, like if you talk about this queasiness and, and the idea of something like Civil War reenactment needs to be, you know, enough like the war to feel cathartic, but not actually being a war made me think yeah. about um, Rene Girard and this idea of like human sacrifice, mm. you know, in the sense that I think the way Girard puts it is, you know, if you're a king or some kind of a emperor, you know, someone in a mythic situation or a historical situation that believes that sacrifice can be cathartic. Mm -hmm. And you have a situation that you're trying to solve, like your child is sick and you want to uh, beseech the gods to, to heal your child. You have to find the right zone of sacrificial object that mm -hmm. will count as a currency. So right. if you're like, you know, maybe I could just like smash some fruit, like probably not enough, right? If you're like, maybe I could just kill a chicken, like probably not enough. Maybe I could kill a goat, maybe, but probably still not enough, right? So like at some point it's like, Maybe yeah. you have to kill a prisoner of war or a slave, and maybe even that's not enough, and you have to kill, you know, a general that you value or something, right? But on the other hand, it can't be too close, right? It can't be like I'm going to kill my son to save my son, <laughs> yeah. right? Nor, nor yeah. can you probably like kill your other son to, you know, so like there's some way that you have to negotiate what is that middle zone yeah. where the proxy functions basically as a currency that's acceptable to both sides. Yeah, that's really well put. I think that I think that's exactly right. And I would say that that's a zone. It, it's one way of putting it, but I would say it, it's a relationship, right? That it that you know the king is kind of a, a tricky example because the king is in this case just kind of working that out on his own, <laughs> or working it out with God, let's say. Um, 
but in the cases that I'm looking at in the book, we're talking about um, disciplines or institutions, right? And so it's figuring out what what the right proxy is that can gain that currency, but that's a kind of collective or social recognition um, and not just, you know, a king figuring out exactly what the right sacrifice will be to, to guarantee success on the battlefield, right. let's say. Although maybe it is a deal, I mean, who knows what, what happened in that situation, but maybe it is a contract with the people. Because in a yeah. way, if the king is seen as, you know, not correctly embodying the will of God, then the guillotines come out. True. Yeah, totally. Totally. No, I, I, I love that comparison. Yeah. There's a negotiation of allowing this specific proxy to put the world into focus. And I think a lot of what you write about is literally about putting images into focus. And, you know, mm. even this uh, Hito Styral video, David, what's it yeah. called? It's called um, how, how Not to Be Seen, a fucking didactic educational.mov file. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> and I, I love this video, and I, I'd actually seen it at a, at a show of hers before and watched it again yeah. after we had read her book. And it just was, it kind of blew my mind to think that we put these calibrating patterns out into the landscape for aerial yeah. photography to be able to see, to see the ground and know exactly, I guess... It seems to me the the end case scenario is just to know what we're bombing and hopefully yes. do it with the most precision, which once again, queasiness of what we're talking about and, and proxies in general is that this negotiation of putting the world into literal focus is done through such a specifically cultural lens that it's supposed yeah. to feel like a collective place, but it actually isn't. And it really now is becoming a you know, almost like a race for who can kind of dominate as much of the world or our perspective of the world through the most agreed upon proxy. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I would, I would agree with that. And, you know, there, there are two chapters about the Len, I mean, that are loosely about the Lena image in the book, um, but they kind of begin and end with the image and they're meant instead to be a way in, and this is why I turn to proxies, is I think that they are a way in, right? Finding that analogous relationship where people feel queasy about the connections they're making <laughs> with reality is a way into an institution. It's a, it's a kind of loose thread and you can kind of pull at it to see um, what kind of cultural work is necessary to maintain a suspension of disbelief and yeah. for me, the Lena image does that really clearly, not just because it's obviously a sign of deeply embedded misogyny, right? And Western really, dominance. It, it absolutely is that thing, right? It's a clear, clear artifact of that. <laughs> but as I, you know, in writing the history of that image, I wanted to just really get into what was happening within uh, image processing and signal processing in the late 1960s and early 1970s in the United States, especially on the West Coast, especially at USC. And so I went, I read every report I could that the Signal and Image Processing Institute produced, right? And it was almost exclusively funded by the Department of Defense or the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So some <laughs> of it was for sending images back from the moon, right, which had to be done uh, um, um, using an analog technique and they're trying to figure out a way of doing it digitally. But really the purpose was, you know, how to better identify enemies in 
uh, Vietnam, right? So it's being funded in the middle of the Vietnam War. And years later, and sort of oral histories about this period, you know, it's being funded out of ARPA uh, um, and the IPTO, which is the, the part of um, ARPA that, that funds ARPANET and which becomes the internet. And they refer to this research as artificial intelligence research. Right, mm. and they and, and one of my favorite quotes is a reference to um, a database of images that was being used at the same time, and which I think you can see some of the remnants of in the in the SIPI research, of tank and non-tank images, and I mean that is a grim, um, if also hilarious way of categorizing the world. <laughs> the great <laughs> on, online that... quiz: Which are you, tank or non-tank? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, only non-tanks will remember this. Um, <laughs> and and sure enough, right, you look at the Signal and Image Processing Institute, and in the same research where the Lena image first appears, um, I've got this triptych of images, right, one on top of the other. It looks like one of those strips of images you'd get from a photo booth at a train station. And it's a tank. It's a girl's face. It's called an image called girl. It's actually from film testing. And it's an aerial surveillance image of a, of a river or a port. And they're running edge detection on it, which is a way of identifying a shape in an image. So if you were trying to identify tanks or non-tanks in an image, you would probably begin with some form of edge detection. Um, and then they're running similar techniques on the Lena image side by side, right? And so we can't, in other words, understand the history of exploitation, abuse, and misogyny within computer science without also understanding that these proxies are being put to the work of controlling space, identifying enemies, basically deciding who, a t who is a target um, and, and you know, who needs to be um, shot at, bombed, or in, a, in some other way controlled. Wow. Do you think a lot of it is you know, speaking of the idea of hyper objects necessitating proxies, you know, and that a lot of this research being done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, do you think a lot of it is basically a direct response to Hiroshima and the idea that the military, you know, after mm. the, the world became, you know, nuclear power, nuclear armed, would have to enter this much more abstract kind of data-driven, spooky, that the idea that the military would be a vector of direct war mm. would permanently be a thing of the past. And that all of this, which sort of eventually birthed the internet mm. was a kind of response to the idea that like, somehow our cultures are still driven to wage war, but we can't do it in the way that we understood it because we'll destroy the planet. Wow, that's an interesting thesis. I haven't, I haven't thought about it that way, but it is, it, it's interesting to think that if, um, yeah, the kind of networked communication and control of space that was being explored, right, and including networked communication with the moon, um, like, and uh, and and satellite images from that period, um, as a way of kind of creating homeostatic control of the planet that that wouldn't be catastrophic, and you would kind of need the optimized ways of seeing the world um, to avoid that catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting. Theory. I have I haven't thought about it in, in those terms. I should also say that that quote about reflecting on those tank and non-tank images, that quote comes or that line comes from a quote that's about the failure, like the continued failure of AI technology. So the quotes from the late 1980s, 
um, and it's reflecting on sort of 20 years of AI research and, and image detection. But I think it's really fascinating since we now live in another boom time for the, let's say, marketing around AI. And we are probably, you know, kind of at the peak of that, right? But it, it was reflecting not on the success of the control of space or the success of uh, identifying enemies or of properly sorting tanks and non-tanks, but on the repeated failures of being able to do so using computers. Yeah, and this like leads to this weird anxiety that we seem to be going through in regards to automation, where there's both a, a longing for it and a resistance to it, especially mm. when we think about AI. And it also is like delve into there being this deep uncertainty about us wanting a standardized world, but also wanting to feel unique and special. And like, we know what's going on and we can always access this general picture, but I guess when you when you get closer to it, all of that actually goes out of focus. And yeah. <laughs> I don't mean that as a pun, but it seems to be like the really like deep, dark dichotomy that's at the center of all of this. Right. And we we experience it every day. And there's there's a PhD student um, working right now on this. But we experience it every day um, when we encounter the CAPTCHA robot, yeah. right? <laughs> Which is like, you've got this automated world. You can, you know do everything you need to do. You've got face ID activated. Now prove you're not a robot by identifying chimneys, right? To, to a ro prove to a robot that you're not a robot. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's prove the best to another part. robot that you're not a robot so that you can have an automated system. That that, that PhD student is Brian Justy. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I just love that example because that, that's a totally a kind of ordinary and banal engagement with um, proxy logic, right? Both that... Uh, that, that the identifying chimneys or buses or whatever it is as a proxy for humanness, right? Which has to do with temporality. Like, do you do at the right speed? How are you clicking? You know, um, how accurate is it? And that 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 entire soup of um, signifiers um, comes to stand in for humanness so that you can go about your business and um, not be harassed as a, as a potential bot. Do you think it, insofar as we're in this moment where proxies uh, represent or try to represent hyper objects, right? So we have you know, proxy wars instead of nuclear war, we have the weather instead of the climate, right? So you can have images mm. of fires or images mm. of polar bears stranded or whatever, mm. but you can't show climate change as a thing unto itself in an image. Mm. And I kind of feel like we have it in culture wars too, that there's these like swarm events where people become incredibly angry about a specific thing that then mm. dissipates almost immediately. And it always feels like it's based on some larger and much more all pervasive anxiety of not knowing if we're on solid ground or not, you know what I mean? And, and maybe also related to when you talk about proxy votes, like one way of understanding a kind of fraying democracy is maybe a sense that people increasingly feel disidentified with anyone in power and just feel like none of those people adequately represent us, wh whoever the S may be, right? So do you feel that in a way, like a, if we think about proxy slippage as a macro event, is it possible that proxies are always a temporary solution to a problem that will out as such? Or is it possible that you never can access the problem itself and you always remain in a logic of proxies? 
I guess I don't, I, I, I don't think about the logic of proxies as um, a problem in and of itself that, that, you know, staying with the stand-in controversy is an issue that needs to be overcome, right? I mean, I think that that's inherent to kind of cultural politics that we need, we need the proxy controversy to process or to, um, protest or to, you know, um, and, and the danger is that the proxy controversy somehow gets solved, right, without ever addressing the underlying political or um, oppressive issue, right, but it's often a mistake to blame the proxy issue, right, I think, I'm thinking, so in the, in the UK, where, where I'm based, we had this, um, you know, we've got an energy crisis, we've got a labor crisis, we've got the fallout of Brexit, um, and, and there's the so-called supply crisis. And in the, you know, October, November of last year, of 2021, um, grocery shelves were a little bit empty and there wasn't too much gasoline around, but maybe there was actually a lot of gasoline and people were panic buying it either way we were sort of facing um, uh, a different kind of crisis. And it became not uncommon to see uh, cardboard cutouts of vegetables filling in the gaps of where those vegetables were supposed to be at the grocery store. So pictures of asparagus in the boxes where the asparagus was supposed to be, or at the pharmacy boots, the chain where you can usually get a meal deal. There were these cardboard pyramids of sandwiches um, <laughs> where regular sandwiches would normally be um, and I mean it's grim right uh, and it was meant I think in part to make it more difficult to see the absence even though then images of those cardboard cutouts and those cardboard sandwiches spread on social media and were covered by the news and themselves became part of the controversy. I think that if we think about proxies as attempts to fill in the gaps, in this case, literally fill in the gaps of crumbling or of threadbare infrastructure, then they become really rich starting points for understanding the performance of stability, right? Mm -hmm. So part of that performance of stability might be, we have a controversy, we have a flare up that's a kind of stand in problem um, and we perform um, resolving that uh, um, to maintain our institution, right? That's not a problem with proxies, but that is a starting point for understanding the larger cultural dynamics and politics that go into maintaining um, stability or the appearance of stability. And that's the kind of that's the kind of ritual. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And it's like proxies in this context conceal and reveal what is taken for granted by the entire society and like i guess a more pure way that isn't so much using um western culture government or military as a specific lens to to seeing that there's like something more honest about it that's exactly right Paul. yeah